Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Michael Sawin. Hi, Alex. <laughs> I'm I'm staring at a cliff, Alex, and it's right car, political cartoon style. It's scrawled final episode of Kurt Vonnegut's question mark. Um, <laughs> but i hope not i know yeah this is i know this is the last like yeah, this thing we have lined up so people out there do more stuff adjacent to the works of kurt vonnegut <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, it's funny i was looking at the, the soundcloud you can comment on the soundcloud for mm-hmm. the show and so folks as michael said programming note wise this is the last thing we have planned for new episodes of the show and then also somebody in a SoundCloud comment was like, hey, what about the Cat's Cradle TV show they announced? And <gasps> for one thing, I believe that's like kind of canceled now. Oh. Noah Hawley said that the mm. FX and Disney or Fox and Disney merger and everything messed with it. But the point of bringing it up is like if something huge like that happens, I would imagine we would make something out of it. Oh, it's definitely. just not like it's not like there's a Dan Harmon Sirens of Titan release next week or something. So we don't, we don't have anything planned. Yeah, and whatever. If you're doing a local community theater one-person show where you pretend to be Vonnegut and read Mark Twain quotes, whatever, whatever, we'll cover it. Let us know. I didn't know it was a Noah Hawley show. That that I mean, it's canceled, so I'm on an emotional roller coaster right now. But that sounds like it could have been cool. Sure. <laughs> yeah, they. It really seems like it was on track, but then the pandemic and that corporate merger both happened, and so so it's not on track. Yeah. But maybe they bring it back. I don't know. Cat's Cradle Show would be great. And also, folks, if you do a bunch of like, like Michael said, like talking about steamboats in a Kurt Vonnegut voice, I would I would check it out. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Sounds good. Only that, though. Only the construction and maintenance of steamboats. <laughs> Highly technical. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but folks, we have a very exciting thing we're talking about today. It is the book. The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. It's a nonfiction book by Tom Roston. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was very exciting to get to read it. And I think we can get straight into segments about it. Because the first segment is called Franken-Time. Cobble, cobble, cobble. Assemble, assemble, assemble. Construct, construct, I electrify. Want to be accepted by society. <laughs> For the monster who gets called Poor Frankenstein. the Frankenstein's monster. He wasn't, though. He was not accepted by society. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, uh, and this book, it uh, was published by Abrams Books in November 2021. Uh, and they also, like, we reached out about an advanced copy. And, and, you know, they were very nice about stuff. So thank you to them. Um, and then this was written by Tom Roston, who mm. I had not heard of before. But he's a journalist. He's a nonfiction author. Uh, he's written two previous books. He also has been staffed at magazines like The Nation and Vanity Fair, and then was also an editor at Premiere Magazine, which is about movies. But yeah, it turns out has written quite a bit, and I was uh, excited to discover him through this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And his two previous books, one in 2015, it was called I Lost It at the Video Store, A Filmmaker's Oral History of a Vanished Era. It's people like John Sayles and Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith talking about like the impact of video rental stores on their creative journey. David O. Russell. Yeah. I wonder if there's a transcript of David O. flipping out on him or anything. <laughs> David O. Russell, Darren Aronofsky. That sounds like a very interesting book. I might pick that up, actually. 
It sounds pretty cool, yeah. yeah. And then and then his other book between then and now is called The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World, The Twin Towers, Windows on the World, and The Rebirth of New York. It came out in 2019, and it's I didn't know this story. Apparently, it's about a restaurant called Windows on the World that was built at the top of one of the Twin Towers in the 1970s. Mm. Uh, and so it's the story of New York City from then to 9-11 told through this restaurant. Also fascinating. And I'm in Brooklyn. Maybe I should yeah, uh, grab a slice Take and an then pick up a copy. local culture. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, and then this book, it comes with an author's note where Rostin lays out how and why he wrote it, which is very handy. Like I, I sort of expected him to do it in the main, main through line of the book since he puts himself into that too. But sort of after the book is basically over, then he does an author's note and says that he was a paid intern at the magazine The Nation after college. In 1993, Kurt Vonnegut called the intern pool to pay them to do a research question for him. Uh, and then much, much, much later on, this publisher, Abrams, started doing books about books. And he jumped on the opportunity to do a book about Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. I honestly, because um, Harlan Ellison, my other favorite author, also does this. At the end of every short story, yeah. usually he'll have a couple paragraphs just explaining why he wrote the story and what it means to him. And I understand I could totally see the point of view where you think that's not necessary or somehow negates your ability to interact with the art piece yourself. But I love it. I got to say, because when I see abstract art or like when I was young and saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, I wanted Stanley Kubrick to explain it to me afterward. I want to know what the artist intended, even if that's different than what I got out of it. Um, so I think every book should, honestly, every book should be like, uh, you know, like, like you'd have riddle books and then at the end you could turn the book upside down and it would have the answer. I want art uh. to have clear answers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I really appreciated that. He just, uh, came out with it and was like, yeah, here's, here's my interest in Vonnegut. Here's what it means to me. Here's why I wrote the book. I'm sure that's more common in nonfiction, but I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, we. I feel like especially with the documentary we just saw by Robert Whitey, like Vonnegut is already encouraging fans to kind of do a Slaughterhouse Five and talk about themselves mm-hmm. in it. And then, yeah, especially with it being a nonfiction book where that's common, like so many factors are combining to make Rostin tell us about himself. And it works. It's yeah, cool. surprise, surprise. The author who's opining on how great Vonnegut is decides to insert himself into the narrative in a meta fashion. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, it's what you do. What else are you going to do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the specific thing with Vonnegut asking a research question, this is a story I had never heard before. And yeah. I'm not sure if the research ended up in a book. I can't, I, I can't remember, I guess, but... It's 1993, Vonnegut calls and says, hey, I need somebody to find the Khmer language, which is a Cambodian language. I need the word for morning sun, because I'm going to make that a character. Mm-hmm. Rostin uh, does not say what the word is, and also I, I don't remember any characters with that kind of name in Vonnegut books. So this might have just been something that he was like chasing as a wild hare, but Rostin says he receives a check for $50 from Kurt Vonnegut for looking it up and finding something out. And then is like torn about whether to keep the check or cash the check. Cause it's like having Kurt Vonnegut's autograph. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's cool memorabilia. And he says he made a copy of the check so he could split the difference, but then also uh, lost the copy. So, oh well, there you go. (laughs) Reminds me of, uh, I once got 
a couple signed drawings by Matt Groening way back in the golden age of Simpsons. And I traded them away on the school bus for like extra lunch snacks. And I always regretted that. (laughs) I think you should have kept the original. Always keep the original. You know, it's worth it. 20 years from now, you'll you'll treasure that more than $50 for sure. Yeah. I I didn't know that story about the Groening drawings. Man, oh man. Yeah, I lucked out because I... I was a precocious little boy and I told him I really liked life in hell comics. And he was like, Oh really? No one, you know, everyone was asking about Bart Simpson all the time. And he was like, let me draw you Bongo, the one eared rabbit and and sign it for you. And he wasn't. And then like a guy in a suit came up and was like, Mr. Groening's not doing autographs. And he was like, ah, for this kid. So I got, I was the special boy that day. And then immediately Alex, I immediately (laughs) traded it for like a honey bun. (laughs) It's cool. (laughs) Oh, well, well, live and learn. You always had it at one point, you know, that's really cool. Right. Exactly. Uh, it yeah. will always be true that I had it at one point in time. Very fitting for this discussion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And uh, so Rostin has, I think, proceeded to get plenty of Vonnegut in his life because then he, to write this book, did tons of travel, tons of interviews, uh, among other people. He talked to Mark Vonnegut, Edith Vonnegut, and Nanette Vonnegut, the three oldest children of Kurt Vonnegut. And friend of the podcast, Mark Leeds, also features in here. Yeah. yeah. Shout out, Mark Leeds. Hey, Mark. And uh, and then also he tells a story that in his travels, in his research, Edith Vonnegut let him come into Kurt Vonnegut's writing studio, open part of a case of Paul Malls that Vonnegut had ordered before his death. Paul Malls are Vonnegut's favorite cigarette. So then Rostin got to smoke a Paul Mall in Vonnegut's writing studio, mm. which I guess would be the inducement for me to have my first cigarette if that opportunity was presented to sure. me. I haven't done it, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe one, you know? I didn't know that about you. Never one. Nary a puff. No. Mm, wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't love an inhaling thing in general. I like a drink, but... Uh, no. Growing up, I never thought I'd smoke a cigarette, and then I met friends who smoked and worked in Hollywood and did end up smoking for eight years, have quit since. But I will oh. say the figure that makes me most want to smoke again is Vonnegut. Cause you think of him, he just made it seem so cool. He lived so long, smoke chain smoking. You know what I mean? He's yeah. the rang rang. He's like the example that you need to shy away from of like, I guess smoking Sid made him a genius. <laughs> But yeah, that, I mean, that beats an autograph, yeah. smoking one of Vonnegut's cigarettes in his writing studio. Come on. <laughs> I also, I wonder, because I, I read a lot of Mark Twain young, and I yeah. remember being very fixated on a Mark Twain story where he, he described it as just a thing he would constantly do, which is that he would be in hotel beds at a bunch of different places, like up late all night smoking cigars in the hotel bed. And he just sort yeah. of offhand said he was constantly almost dying. Because if the cigar fell because he fell asleep, it would light the bed on fire and he would die. And I was, I think that made smoking look real bad to me yeah. as a kid. It's like, no. That's also the, just imagining, I've only, I only had a cigar at a bachelor party and I smoked a whole cigar. And I think because I'm used to cigarettes and marijuana, I inhaled, which you're not supposed to do. Lost my lunch. Oh, yeah. uh, and yeah, oh. cigars just have always seemed utterly like a hardship to me, like a burden that you have to work through. So it's always crazy to me to imagine Mark Twain sm- 
smoking full cigars casually in bed. The smell in that room, Alex, <laughs> must have been yeah. ungodly. Different time. <laughs> it's just a like, plume of smoke. All yeah. clouds around it. <laughs> yeah, history stank. Something awful. Yeah. <laughs> this this we can agree on. Absolutely. <laughs> um. <laughs> But yeah, and so so Rostin put this book together. Apparently, Abrams did an earlier book about 1984 by George Orwell and an earlier book about The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And so this is the third of their books about books. And the specific angle is in particular, you know, Kurt Vonnegut and his potential PTSD and also whether that's written into the book. Um, Rostin is not a veteran and never claims to have had any uh, PTSD in his life but uh, talks to a lot of people who have. Yeah, speaks to a number of veterans, particularly veteran authors, uh, visual artists who are veterans. Uh, Tim O'Brien, obviously, who wrote extensively and painted things about w- the war. Yeah, he got around. He did his due diligence. He talked to a lot of folks. And I think from there we can get into the next segment, sure. which is summary time. Some, 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 I some, long some, to be synopsized by society. <laughs> Frankenstein's monsters. Uh, all of goals them are the monster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know you won't accept me. At least summarize me, please. Pigeonhole me and reduce me down to my simplest form. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and yeah, this is uh, very straightforward. It's we kind of did the segment for the documentary too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this uh, this book it has kind of a few different elements going on all at once uh, in a way that mostly works for me. It's it's complicated in a good way. Yeah, it's meandering or it's not it's not a through line as clear as like the Whitey piece only really had two threads. It was like Whitey's relationship with Vonnegut intercut with the story of Vonnegut's life in a pretty straightforward fashion. Um, This is much more of a series of essays. They are on a theme, the theme being PTSD, whether Vonnegut had it, whether Billy Pilgrim had it, whether writing Slaughterhouse-Five was an exercise in exploring PTSD. Um, but he's free to, I think he sort of interviewed very interesting people who are relevant to the issues and went where they took him. You know, there was like, there's like an aside where he deconstruct, which I loved cause I'm starting to hate Malcolm Gladwell. There's an aside where he deconstructs <laughs> a Malcolm Gladwell piece and is like, this is bullshit. This Malcolm Gladwell piece. And it's like, Same yeah, it goes about that. Yeah. It goes where it wants to. Um, but I would say, right, the core is the PTSD issue is what it finally arrives at. But it does dip into a bit of a description of what Kurt's, the basic beats of Kurt's life and things like that. And then he'll just be like, oh, yeah, and I got to talk to Nanette and here's what she said. Um, but it seems it's always circling around that issue of of trauma from the war and how Slaughterhouse-Five is a unique way to tackle that and especially the unstuck in time element how that so mirrors the ptsd experience is sort of like the thesis of the book i would say i agree yeah i think when he's writing this he has almost a mission that he gives himself and then doesn't give himself where he's like let's figure out if kurt vonnegut had ptsd personally right and pretty quickly he says a that's hard to answer b is it kind of gross to just kind of diagnose a guy who's no longer here and based on, you know, various letters and a, and a fictional book he wrote, you know, it's so then he, I feel like from giving himself that mission and then pulling away from it, he goes in all these other directions to, to get like 
around it and also say something. Yeah, tries tries a bunch of different interesting things. Like at one point he takes the DSM quiz to determine whether you have PTSD and applies it to Billy Pilgrim. Like how would Billy Pilgrim answer this quiz? Can we determine yeah. if he has PTSD? And there's a number of false starts also, which I'm kind of of mixed opinion about, especially the first one about, uh, oh. yeah, maybe this is the meat. Well, I guess it's still summary, but I'll, I'll save my commentary for the meat, but let me just say, in the beginning, he starts by describing the direction he thought the book would go in or like a lead that he had. Um, like the, this, the book, Unstuck in Time by Tom Rostin, was at one point going to be called Kurt Vonnegut Nazi Slayer, or at least he considered that title because yeah. of a story he heard from Bernard V. O'Hare's son who said that he heard from another Vietnam vet that he heard Kurt Vonnegut talking with Bernie O'Hare and that they implied heavily that during that there was a period where they in civilian life where they tracked down and found a particularly sadistic prison camp guard and murdered him. And he was like, well, that's the story. That's the lead. And you're right. That would be quite a tale um but then he's quick to point out i looked into a bit and i and then i want to say and he puts it in all caps i do not believe the story is true so we're not going to talk about that but that's what the book was going to be so there's like there's these weird that's why i call it meandering uh it it has a focus but it's not afraid to give false starts backtrack talk about the difficulties in putting the book together how the book was going to be before it became what it is etc etc Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He, he calls that story. He gives it like a movie splash title, like Kurt Vonnegut, Nazi Slayer. Yeah. And and then both at the beginning and end says, again, never happened. Absolutely no evidence of it besides Bernard O'Hare Jr. saying so. And right. And even with Kurt's life in general, the Kurt's overall biography is woven into the book. And if you've heard this entire podcast, you probably know a great deal of it. But also the it's sort of broken into one chunk uh, where you do all of Kurt's early life up to writing Slaughterhouse Five, mm -hmm. and then he writes a bunch of other stuff. Then gets back to Kurt Vonnegut's life writing Slaughterhouse Five, writes a bunch of other stuff, and then gets to Vonnegut's life post Slaughterhouse Five. And I feel like that's like okay, but also if you didn't know a lot about Vonnegut going in, that might be kind of hard to track. Like it might be hard to jump back to the life of this author over and over again. That's true. Yeah. It, it did have a few little biographical tidbits that I was still delighted to stumble across. Like he was paid a thousand dollars to build an 18 foot statue to put in a restaurant's lobby. Like I want to, I mean, I wish there was a picture of the statue included. I want to see what kind of statue Kurt Vonnegut came up with. Um, yeah. he said that a person was only smart for three hours a day. I hadn't heard that curtism before yeah there's some there's some good little little tidbits in there i think the big revelation to me was that slaughterhouse five that at the lily library there's over 500 pages of draft of slaughterhouse five and at least at least 18 different openings including what someone some writer in the book describes as like toilet paper worthy like uh, <laughs> apparently this work of unmitigated, staggering genius, you know, took a long time to chip away at. And not everything Kurt, Kurt sits down at the typewriter and it's not like gold just comes out, which is some 
Some writers are like that. Not I, They tend to be writers who have one or two amazing books in them. But uh, Kurt, it seems like, or you get the impressions from this telling at least, that he was a hard worker who chipped away at the writing over and over and over and threw stuff away and redid it and redid it and redid it. And I, I definitely admire that, the work ethic and sort of that strategy resonates with me very deeply. Yeah, it's it's exciting to get that knowledge about him and reminder of him. Mm-hmm. Like I like, uh, and it reminds me of Philip Pullman. I, I like Philip Pullman's mm, writing a lot. Yeah. And he, I read an interview with him one time where he said that he's like, I'm fundamentally not better at writing than anybody else. I just, I've just continued to do it every day. And I, I just like kept showing up in a way other people didn't. That's it. Ray Bradbury, same thing. He always swore that he wrote eight hours a day, five days a week. Like he worked at a factory and their product was writing. And it's like, <laughs> that's how you get good at writing or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or any other activity. Yeah. Exactly. In this, uh, Kurt says, I come to work every morning and I see what words come out of the typewriter. Uh, which I do, and I feel like a copy boy who's just ripping paper out for delivery to the press. And that is such a good encapsulation of writing, because I don't know about you, but when I sit down to write, I definitely don't consciously have a stream. Yeah, It's not like I'm surprised by some mystical force from outside me. It still feels like it's coming from my fingertips. But you know, at the at the moment of typing, you're not thinking consciously, now this word next, now this word next, now this word next. You just <laughs> yeah. get a sentence out. And then you read it and go, ah, I don't like that or whatever you, however you may react. But, uh, yeah, it's always fascinating to me, the act of human communication, even what we're doing right now. Right. Like freaky. It's amazing to me that I can formulate thoughts so quickly and I didn't pre-script them. <laughs> like talking <laughs> is a pretty neat trick humans do. And sometimes yeah. it feels like it happens automatically. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also, and there's one bit, it, uh, it made me wonder if Tom Rostin was writing toward an audience that has potentially never written books, which is valid if he wants to do that. Because mm-hmm. as he's mm-hmm. describing the toilet papery drafts that Vonnegut sometimes did, Rostin kind of pulls the whole book aside to say, like, and please don't judge Kurt. Like, please don't decide he's a terrible writer. Please don't be disillusioned by him. And that felt incredibly unnecessary to me. I was like, no, I get it. Like, first drafts aren't very good. Of yeah, course. We get it. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's a person. And yet he he does pull out. Like he talks about how Kurt wrote letters home from the war where he says, and -and so-and-so died, but not me. And then they bombed this city and and 25,000 people died, but not me. And he's like, of course, you can see how that evolved into, and so it goes. And uh, he also talks about a version of the story where it was very straightforward and like maudlin. And Kurt wrote lines like, and and there I was like the inheritor of all the sorrow of my mankind, but I was there. When were the, when will there be peace on this earth? You know, like the exact kind of not rye, not sardonic, like just straightforward <laughs> war is hell kind of book that ultimately we do not associate with Kurt at all. So it's very interesting to me that he had to start with something like that to end up at this new thing. That is almost, I mean, he describes it in this book and has described it previously as the Slaughterhouse Five chapters are structured like little jokes. And I think that's Kurt's, you know, that's one of Kurt's primary features is they feel like little postcard vignettes, almost like each chapter is a far side comic about an incredibly impactful, sorrowful topic. And yeah, it's 
comforting to know that it took him a long time to arrive at that trick because that's quite a trick to pull off and uh it's heartening (laughs) to me that it took effort it would almost be upsetting if he was just born into this world as kurt vonnegut and it all came easy really yeah yeah now i'm now i'm thinking about how forever ago when we read player piano in some ways that was a slog but it, it was kind of thrilling to see him be pretty ordinary a lot of the time in that book. Pretty earnest. Yeah. Or like if he yeah. wants to say something is sad, he just says, and this thing was very sad. And you're like, yeah. that's not what Kurt does. <laughs> Kurt says the opposite. That's his game he plays. He says everything was beautiful and nothing hurt when he means the opposite, you know. So you see him find yeah. his feet. Yeah. Find his voice, I should say. And uh, and then let's see other other elements to summarize in Rostin's book. As you said, he talks to a lot of people, and in particular, Tim O'Brien. There are two pull quotes at the start of the book. One of them is Kurt Vonnegut, but the other is from Tim O'Brien, saying that if you you know, read a war book and took anything uplifting from it, you're wrong. You've been fooled. Like There's nothing uplifting about war. It's not good. <laughs> and, uh, and then Rostin, in person, meets with and talks to O'Brien often about PTSD and writing and how they intersect. And there's a lot of really amazing stuff from O'Brien saying that he and Vonnegut were pretty much on the same wavelength. They were just doing it very differently. Yeah. And they talk about uh, Heller's The Naked and the Dead, Thomas Pinchon, Hunter Thompson, a lot of, uh, you know, you sort of get Vonnegut placed into his community and a, a better appreciation of who was inspiring him and what he was what he was despairing and looking at and going, oh, that's the great war novel. How can I compete with that? Um, and he found his own angle and his own path to it that he had to come to through trial and error. I also love the Tim O'Brien quote a little later or like early in the book. In a true war story, nothing much is ever very true. Often in a true war story, there is not even a point, which is a great way of saying, I think, the vibe that Kurt eventually is able to encapsulate so well. He doesn't like Tim O'Brien is just saying it. Slaughterhouse five shows that Slaughterhouse five, you know, evokes that truism that, uh, a true war story. There is not even a point, (laughs) which is, Oh boy. (laughs) Grim and funny. Yeah. Often the same. Yeah. And, and, and a real compliment to Vonnegut from O'Brien that he's saying like your use of flying saucers and, and stuff like that you're not at all pulling us too far away from the meaningfulness of world war two. No, and I like, think it's, it's not a gag. It's, I mean, it is a coincidence, but it's fitting that his name is Kurt. Cause I think his being <laughs> pithy and punchy and short is one of his great strengths. Like in my own writing uh, of fiction, I think I'm often too flowery and lengthy and like, so like take that Tim O'Brien <laughs> quote and then compare it to the Vonnegut quote. There's nothing intelligent to be said about a massacre. Same basic point said Mm -hmm. in the punchiest way possible. Like Kurt is so good at getting in, getting out very quickly, very short, very efficient, makes it so accessible. You know, I think that's one of the reasons he has such legions of loyal fans. It's not every day you can muscle through a Thomas Pinchon novel. (laughs) It takes a lot of focus (laughs) and like doing, um, whereas Vonnegut, I, Everyone who listens to this probably knows this, but like just such an easy read. Uh, And I don't mean easy emotionally, but like literally you sit down and you're just sucked in. It's engaging as hell. Yeah. I remember what long ago when we prepared a Slaughterhouse Five episode of the podcast, Mm -hmm. I remember being like really surprised how quickly I could read Slaughterhouse Five. 
Oh yeah. Like it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of gravity, but mm-hmm. there's not that many words in it. Yeah. I really, in- I think I appreciated that, uh, when we covered the graphic novel as well, it's like, man, they didn't even have to cut anything for time. It, the story of Slaughterhouse <laughs> Five that has such big ideas in it that they've shaped my life and my like understanding of even how the universe works. Or like I kind of, if I have anything approaching faith, I think I believe in Kurt Vonnegut's view of how time works. <laughs> and like, uh, <laughs> yet it's however many words it is. It's it's not that long and yeah. it's breezy to read through in a weird way. Uh, or as as another author, Steve Allman says. Vonnegut's books perform the greatest feat of alchemy, the conversion of grief into laughter by means of courageous imagination. That's a good line. Yeah. They, yeah. And he does it fast, too. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, and with Rustin's book, I'm looking at my list of like other chunks of it. Mm-hmm. There is, there's, in the middle of it, there's, uh, I'd say, two chapters or so that focus on the history of PTSD. Right. And not, not the history of people having it so much, but the history of it being a concept and especially what the U.S. military did with it in the world wars. Because especially having read so much about Kurt Vonnegut specifically, I could I could have read a whole book of just this separately. Like yeah. I, I would there's so much to know about that in particular that the uh, the concept of PTSD was not a schema for us until the past handful of decades, really. And yet the idea that uh, traumatic events have lingering effects on the human psyche, which I thought was so fascinating about that passage or that segment, uh, goes back to like, you know, he quotes lines from the Iliad about like their war torn hearts (laughs) and shit and their warped minds and how that led to a phrase called moral injury which led to the like seeded to the word nostalgia, meaning like an intense longing for home when you're in a war context. And then that was called cannonball wind syndrome, soldier's <laughs> heart, shell shock, neurasthesia, battle fatigue, post Vietnam syndrome, and then finally PTSD. Like that's a chronology of all these terms that we came up with to try and understand. Like, you know, that guy's shell shocked was the World War One version and just fascinating to see how we've variously treated it ignored it denied its existence accepted its existence you know it's that is a very fascinating history i i agree i could have seen more about that yeah even talks about emdr which my partner is doing now um for some childhood trauma they suffered which is like it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and it's Involves literally like flicking your eyes in different directions and doing patterned finger taps while you relive uh, certain memories and do certain like thought exercises. And the VA says it's unclear why it works, but it remains one of their most effective treatments. So, yeah, PTSD, endlessly interesting, especially when you get people like Uh, Tom O'Brien and Kurt himself from the older generation who go, I'm fine. (laughs) Like there's also this grouchy older generation (laughs) who are like, um, PTSD is not real. I, I, it's normal. I saw horrible things and I'm haunted by them. That's as, as it should be. And, uh, I don't know there's so many angles on it and so many, there's no like right way to tackle it. Uh, the fact that life has suffering in it and suffering affects humans is just, we'll never stop reshaping our relationship to that fact. Probably. That, and I, when you mentioned before that Rostin picks apart a Malcolm Gladwell essay, 
the Malcolm Gladwell essay is basically taking the claim of I'm fine at face value, and in particular from a book called The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. Mm-hmm. And apparently Gladwell reads that book and says, you know, maybe what if we, uh, he does like the slate, it's called the slate.com pitch is what I think of it, where you just mm-hmm. say the opposite of what people think and see if you get an essay out of it. Like yeah. Gladwell says, what if we just stopped caring about PTSD? What if we just did the older generation thing of of pretend to get over it? And Rostin says, not only do all the things we know not make sense with that, but Gladwell's misreading this book, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, where the guy does not end happy. He's like a broken alcoholic person at the end. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Gladwell's the master of that, where it's like, oh, now we live in a time where we address PTSD very robustly. What if we didn't? <laughs> What if we did the opposite? Maybe that would be interesting, or at least good for some clicks. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The thing I really like out of that whole passage is the idea that trauma destroys the fabric of time and how, I don't know, I haven't gone through that particular kind of trauma, so it doesn't ring true in my bones in a way that it does for these people, but he certainly talks to a number of veterans who are like, "That that is true. Like, my experiences in war caused me to process time differently than you. Yeah. And I believe them. So that's a fascinating point that, that, that consciously or unconsciously he's using sci-fi to literally mimic what the effect PTSD has on the human brain. It's really cool. And I'm, I'm with you. I also have not had the experiences these guys have had, but it, yeah, it was amazing yeah. to not only Knock hear on wood. some of them. Yeah, really. Um, it was amazing to read some of them not only saying, I see time that way, but even one or two of them saying something along the lines of, like, Billy Pilgrim was a blueprint for me. Like, mm-hmm. I was in the war. I came back from it. I needed to start living again. And reading that book was useful for figuring out how to start functioning. Yeah. Which is ast- astonishing because it's, again, even though Tim O'Brien says it's realistic, it is a man being brought to an alien planet to have sex in a zoo. It's It's really astonishing that... It can also be so meaningful to them. It's great. Right. And, and yeah, and Rostin writes himself into the stories of talking to the veterans, too. So it's a lot of visiting people, getting to know them. There's there, he, he never hides himself, especially when he's talking to people. No, but I would say his style is pretty transparent, genial. Yeah, writing, <laughs> nonfiction writing <laughs> that I would expect. Or, or it's... Uh, yeah. I'll just say he's no Hunter S. Thompson. I don't necessarily mean that as an insult, but in the sense that he doesn't make his voice the overriding textural element of the book. I think he gets out of the book's uh. way for the most part. But he carries you along with him on this little research journey he had of talking to all these people, and he gives you the fruits of his labor uh, in a pretty transparent way, I'd say. Yeah, you're right. It's like magazine feature writer kind of thing of totally. I'm definitely here yeah. but we're mainly talking to this person and yeah what would I guess the Gonzo version would be like Tom Rostin enlists and suffers PTSD and then <laughs> like in order right. to write the book yeah. <laughs> that remains I think the only Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the only book I've read in one sitting that's how magnetic it was to me Yeah, is uh, a, a teacher gave it to me first period in high school and said, give this a shot. And I ditched school for the only time in my life. And by ditched school, I mean, I just sat outside and read all day and finished the entire book. Like, whoo, 
talk about not transparent. Like <laughs> every sentence is just drenched in style. It's like a Guy Ritchie experience in some ways, but uh, you know, it has its place. I find it highly compelling. Hunter S. Thompson is something else. Oh yeah. I mean, especially from your videos. I know you're a fan, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. definitely. Oh, right. right. This, this is true. This we know. <laughs> Yeah. Are there any other, I think we covered all the basic parts of the book and, and if we hopped around a bit, it's cause the book does too, but, but also I would say not to a full extreme slaughterhouse five extent. Like it's no. just moving from thing to thing and you're not exactly like disjointed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's about right. Well, I think then the next segment here is uh, one of our favorite segments. Of course, it's called the meat. Chop, 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 choppity chop. What would Frankenstein's monster <laughs> say about meat? You know what? Let's he just get meat. into it, Alex. He's <laughs> I made guess of he meat. Is meat. Yeah, we're all meat. <laughs> the ultimate truth. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, from here we've got big questions about this book. And I, I think mm-hmm. the, the first main one is just do we know more about Kurt Vonnegut now? Like did this journey that we've summarized and, and maybe to answer it we get into parts of the journey. But, but did this journey tell us more about Kurt? And reveal more. I feel like I already knew 85% of what was said, but I am a hardcore Kurt head. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, and I still really appreciated the bits that I didn't, you know, like Same. Um, yeah. his last public words were a joke about his dog, the same dog that he tripped on and hit his head and died. <laughs> I'm like, that is a very Vonnegutian like death scene. And I appreciate yeah. that being put in that perspective. There's insights even about Slaughterhouse five that I didn't necessarily come to on my own. For example, he compares the image of Billy Pilgrim sitting on a coffin on the back of the cart with the thousand yard stare. Um, he compares that to Queequeg on the coffin floating in the ocean at the end of Moby Dick and not having read Moby Dick. I appreciated, I was like, oh, I did not know that. And that makes a lot of sense and is a great literary reference. So there were little tidbits <laughs> that definitely made me appreciate Slaughterhouse-Five and Kurt even more. Yeah. Um, but I knew most of it. Same. And I, I was extra electrified by that Moby Dick one because I've read it, but I only read it in the last couple of years and after mm. I read Slaughterhouse-Five. So it, I, did, I didn't do it in the order that most readers probably did if they connected that. And, uh, sure. Wow. Yeah, it fits with that thing. Yeah. Uh, My AA sponsor was reading Moby Dick the whole time that we were like working together. And I just remember him one day finishing it, setting it down and going, huh, Moby Dick's good. Who would have known? Like, who would have thought? (laughs) I guess things are unmitigated masterpiece classics for a reason. Turns out Moby Dick is good. I got I got to try something. Did you like Moby Dick? I did, and it's like, if and maybe I just have limited references to draw in because I haven't read enough. But mm-hmm. it felt like if a Shakespeare play was like a hundred hours long in a good way, mm-hmm. like if a Shakespeare yeah. play was impossibly humongous, and and so you have that kind of language that also takes a lot of energy, but then also that kind of depth, like all the time, you know, and the density of cleverness, right? Like in that language, yeah. as you decode it, you go. That is very smart. Or <laughs> like what that person just said is very interesting. Yeah. At least that's how I feel about Shakespeare. It's like unwinding. A, in fact, in this book, they talk about uh, classic literature is like 
striking a nut and you will crack it and you get to the meat of the nut and that's the truth. And that's like a pinter play or, or like, you know, mm. all my sons or something like that where they go bunch of buildup, bunch of buildup. Here's the moral of the story, even an Aesop's fable or what have you. Um, whereas a lot of modern literature is more like peeling an onion till there's nothing left and <laughs> there's just questions, but along the way, each layer has truth or vibrates with meaning in some way. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely appreciate that. And what I think is amazing is Shakespeare actually managed in some ways to be a very modern storyteller. Vonnegut himself points out in this book that Hamlet is a, is one of the most striking storytelling examples of we don't know what's good news or bad news. Hamlet's mm -hmm. fate is Hamlet is almost just to quote the Simpsons, a bunch of stuff that happens and, and, <laughs> but in a mean, in a meaningful way where you're like, yeah, man, that's life. Like, and that is yeah. the nature of PTSD, right? It's like not everything that happens to us can be integrated cleanly into a story. We tell ourselves and go, that's the story of my life thus far. It's this and this and this. That all makes sense. PTSD, part of it at least, is the idea that trauma especially, but any sort of memory or experience like can't be cleanly integrated in or seems to fly in the face of what we thought we knew about how the world works or how we work or how life works. Um, and I think that's not only a striking facet of PTSD, it's just a component of being a human anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This book definitely made me think about Louis Ferdinand Céline uh, is quoted as saying, oh, no, I'm quoting the wrong thing. He says no art is possible without a dance with death. But then Vonnegut says death and suffering can't matter nearly as much as I think they do since they're so common. Right. And I make such a big deal out of them. I must be insane. <laughs> like <laughs> that is an interesting conclusion to arrive at. But like compare, you know, certain animals grieve. I don't know. This just made me meditate a lot about the animal kingdom and the idea that in this book, Vonnegut says, you know, a flower didn't choose to be a flower. I wonder if it feels a sense of accomplishment once it's bloomed. I wonder if a lion feels guilt or any sense of grim necessity or even questions that it has to kill a zebra, you know, and rip it apart and yeah. that the zebra screams as it dies. Does the lion give a shit? Should we? <laughs> <laughs> like is there <laughs> is there inherent is there an inherent value to life or is it just that genetic thing propelling us forward towards survival yeah and then i guess the alien's answer is there is no why and we just are around that trophy Midorian alien is there is no why we just are we just exist the true aspect or yeah the truest thing you can say is it is what it is or like yeah that's it just is a monolith of things happening. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And Kurt would describe the storylines of as we've seen, we've talked about this in the past, but his famous story diagrams lecture. And in Hamlet, he started at middling, went low and then just was a flat line like Hamlet just <laughs> from the moment he finds out that something is rotten in Denmark or whatever. He's he's not having a good time and he never has a good time it, despite yeah. doing so much and having all these schemes and some of the schemes work and some of the schemes don't work. By and large, his life remains on the course it was on. And uh, I just think that's an interesting way we can all keep perspective on the ups and downs of life. Yes, they're real. Yes, you're feeling them. But to a trail Famidorian, it's just like looking at a mountain range. <laughs> it always was that way. Don't worry so much. Yeah, it's just what's going on.
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and as far as yeah, new stuff about Vonnegut, everything you pulled that that really jumped out to me. There was a, a number in there I don't think I knew, which is that when Vonnegut was imprisoned by the Germans in in World War II in real life, he went from a weight of 175 pounds to 134 pounds. Mm. Uh, just freaky to imagine and think about. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure that's happened to lots of POWs or something like it. But of course, uh, you know there there are spots here where Rostin has a piece of research or an item like that where I've never seen it before. Oh yeah, one that got me was that. Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five estimates that 135,000 people were burned alive in Dresden. He took that number from a guy who later became a famous anti-Semite and Holocaust denier, and the number was round, was like, the quote-unquote real number was um, recalculated down to about 25,000 people burned alive. And Vonnegut says, does it matter? Interesting thought. I kind of think it does. But I do think numbers are different than other numbers and degrees exist and like a spectrum, you know, it matters. But uh, I still understand what he means. He means one person burned alive is is a tragedy regardless. Um, Yeah. So that was an interesting moment for me. Uh, I also really like this. Yeah. The Swahili saying that Rostin puts in there at the end. Um, the story has been told. If it was bad, it was my fault because I'm the storyteller. If it was mm. good, it belongs to everybody. That was cool. Uh, speaking of it is what it is. I like the idea of just, yeah, you sit down at the typewriter. You didn't ask to be born Kurt Vonnegut. It's a privilege that you have the ability to sit at a typewriter and this stuff comes out. So it doesn't even really belong to you. You know, it's everybody's. Yeah. You're lucky that you that your hands make these words. Let it just be that way. Yeah, it's like he cites another, there's a Kirk quote where he says something like, I unfortunately have the same opinion of writers that Hitler and Stalin did, which is that writers should serve society. Mm-hmm. And he's he's doing a, a wink about it, referencing those monsters. But yeah, that, I think that plays into writers. If writers should serve society, then we don't need to constantly trumpet the writer for doing something good. We can just enjoy it and they should be grateful that that happened. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we all benefit. When these yeah. things come into existence. And uh, and there was, the book also had a lot of background on exactly when and how Slaughterhouse-Five was written. Like we said about all those uh, pages of drafts and everything, it jumped out to me there is an October 1966 letter that Vonnegut writes where he describes actually attempting to write a screenplay where it's a World War II movie with a lead role for Kirk Douglas, the actor where it would be heroic. Mm-hmm. And then and he says, oh, I never went through with it because I couldn't do it. That's just not how war is to me. But Would have pissed off Mary O'Hare for real. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know he, at least for a, a day or two or whatever, attempted to do the thing he later in the book promises to not do. It was like, maybe I will make Call of Duty Modern Warfare. And you're like, no, Kurt, <laughs> no, don't make Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Let other people do that. That's not your role. You know? But it's interesting that he had to arrive at it. And, you know, we always forget that despite all of the great work he did, he was still a living man, possibly in the throes of manic depression. It's arguable, but trying to also make a living and make a name for himself and feel that he had dignity and self-respect and move up in the world. And uh, I think this book does a good job of layering all that together and not not shoving it aside. 
he was complicated as we all are. No one's, uh, in fact, the movie we just covered, I think does a little more fudging to make Kurt Vonnegut's life story seem like a story, meaning it's structured properly and it has a clean beginning, middle and end. This book lets Kurt's life be a bunch of random stuff piled on top of each other, which is what real life more is in my experience. Yeah. Now I'm now remembering, uh, this book like cites a story Vonnegut used to tell, which is like a joke, but the joke is mm. a lady basically drives her car straight through a bunch of yards and houses in a neighborhood. And I think the punchline is they ask her why she didn't take her foot off the gas pedal. And she says she was too busy steering. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's his metaphor for all of living is just like, and, and I think he told the story partly about adopting the Adams sons when their parents died, including Kurt's sister. But I, I don't know. He he seems to have really had that mindset about his own life, too, that just stuff kept happening and he tried to keep up day to day. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. He admits that he tends to blow his cork every 20 days or so. And he has since he was six years old. Uh, his kids are interviewed and describe him as very loving in his writing and wanting to be loving. But I think Nanette says uh, he found it difficult to be consistently warm and connected to the people he loved. He's a much more complicated figure in this than he is to Whitey, which makes sense because Whitey had like a very positive, not surface level, like it seemed robust, but you know what I mean? A very positive relationship with him as a friend. He didn't have to want parenting from him or need uh, his approval in the same way or or respect or understanding in the same way a child might. Um, So (laughs) I think it's telling that the kids are like, yeah, I mean, my dad was a jerk sometimes, <laughs> or like he was depressed sometimes, you know, grouchy sometimes. Um, writing is, of course, a, a version of ourselves that we're able to curate and present. Um, so it represents your intentionality, I think, more than your day-to-day reality. Yeah, wow. I think that's that done. Mm-hmm. Related to that, because the, the next question I was thinking about here is, do we have a firmer sense specifically of Vonnegut's PTSD, whether he had it or not? And a thing that super jumped out in this book to me is that the Vonnegut children, Rostin interviews have a range of opinions on whether Vonnegut had PTSD. Like his son, Mark just says, yep, he was a combat vet with PTSD. Correct. And his Mm -hmm. daughter, Edith says, I think the quote here is he wasn't bitter. He wasn't cynical. He was heartbroken by how humans treated each other. Maybe he had PTSD just from being alive. He saw too much and he felt too much, end quote. Like, she doesn't really think the war specifically gave him that clinical condition, if he had it. And I th- I know a lot of people who, I mean, it does seem like a, a gradient. It's hard to almost differentiate, right? War is not the only thing that traumatizes us. And if you live long enough unless you're the luckiest person on earth, (laughs) some kind of trauma will befall you and it affects you going forward and to some degree. So it's always going to be up for debate. It's like, did Abe Lincoln have Marfan syndrome? Hmm, I don't know. We can't really know that (laughs) concretely. So, uh, I do think it remains an open question, but there's strong evidence in the, there's definitely strong evidence that Billy Pilgrim has PTSD and that Kurt understood PTSD because I think the thing that book convinced this book convinced me of the most was that a robust understanding of the effects of PTSD is woven into the structure of Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah. Uh, so 
whether Kurt deeply understood it or to what degree he was suffering from it actively on a moment to moment basis. Hard to say Uh, whether it came from the war or his mother's suicide or bad genes. Like he says, bad brain chemicals, you know, those are very real (laughs) and they can just be sloshing around your system and causing your, like Kurt says in the book, we'll always have these dips, these crushing depressions. We just inherited these dips. I think it's almost impossible to differentiate, especially now that he's no longer with us. Would the dips have been as bad if you didn't go to war and see a firebombing? I don't know. No one knows. And it, and at yeah. least in Tom Roston's credit, he's just setting up all the probabilities and saying, you know, these seem like reasonable interpretations of reality. But we can't definitively say. Who can? That's that Tim up. O'Brien seems seems to be very anti. He's like, ah, everyone has PTSD. That's just being alive. <laughs> we shouldn't <laughs> give it a special name. <laughs> yeah, and... I extremely agree too when you when said that this book has an understanding of PTSD woven into it. Like Rustin's book is really convincing about saying that about Slaughterhouse Five. And, and Rustin also has a lot of amazing stories about the real person, Joe Crone. Because I, and I, I had forgotten until reviewing this, but in real life, Kurt Vonnegut had a fellow soldier in his unit named Joe Crone who basically just uh, gets a 2,000-yard stare going and dies in the middle of the war. Dies and, of a broken heart, someone says, yeah. Yeah, and and apparently Vonnegut waited until he heard that both of Crone's parents had passed away before admitting to anybody or telling anybody, Billy Pilgrim's based on Joe Crone, which is big as far as like understanding Huge. the book, because yeah, so many people just course. figure Billy as Kurt. But Kurt, at least in his head, maybe only after the fact he's saying this, but... At least to some extent in his head, he was like writing down what happened to another person. And so if that person and and repeated many times in his life, like, no, that didn't happen to me. I, I will. I'm tougher than that. He said, I, you know, neighborhood dogs I grew up with had more of an effect on my modern day psyche than the war did. Yeah. And that's <laughs> hard to know yourself, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it seems right. Because I, I think he's go. I think he's going too far when he says stuff like that. I personally don't buy it. Uh, yeah, I think he at, at least had some trauma for sure. But like, like Rostin, I don't know for sure. But I, yeah, I agree with. I think it's Jerome Klinkowitz is the expert who says that whatever Kurt Vonnegut's situation was, Joe Crone definitely had PTSD based on the record. Right, and that, and that, I think would answer a lot of the questions about Slaughterhouse Five of like, is it a book about PTSD? It it seems like it's pretty likely it was about another guy's PTSD, if not Kurt's. But so yes. Yeah. If not Kurt's own experience, yes, it is still yeah. exemplifying a deep understanding of PTSD and its effects on soldiers in particular. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, also it blew me away in the chapter of Rostin's book about the history of understanding war trauma that they really only started to codify PTSD in the modern understanding uh, kind of late in Vietnam and after Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, Vonnegut wrote his book in the middle of Vietnam, wrote Slaughterhouse-Five, and so he's writing about PTSD before it has been understood. Like, you you can see why he is reaching for stuff like flying saucers to describe this thing, because it's not in the DSM yet. It's not fully uh real to a lot of people yeah it's interesting the timing of it and how it coincided with there's a whole and it ties it into the greater 
context of the whole wave of post-war books and where Vonnegut fits into that landscape. I thought that was a very interesting, yeah, like broader view. And it doesn't stick around about how, uh, like, I like that the book blatantly says, and Kurt's main failing is he doesn't give women their due or see things from a female perspective. I was like, yeah, like the book doesn't, um, it doesn't coddle Vonnegut either. Yeah. I think it has a strong grounding in historical reality and sort of like, he's a writer among many other writers. Here are writers that influenced him. Here are writers he influenced. Here's compare and contrast between, you know, his style and other styles that were also considered like distillations of the war experience at the time. Um, like I, yeah, they talk about Hemingway who said war books are the best because uh, there's a lot of action and a lot of shit happens to people really fast. I'm like, that's not a good enough reason to, I always think Hemingway's kind of surfacey, but, uh, he's, you know, he's in some ways the funniest author who ever lived Hemingway, Uh, like a bourbon soaked punch to the jaw. Yeah, he is. He's just like, (laughs) We're talking about war, boys. Let's go. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> Pretty straightforward. <laughs> then I got my legs blown off. It was sad. <laughs> this is fair and true. All right. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed Vonnegut. Seeing the shape of Vonnegut amidst the background of other contemporaries was also very illuminating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of a sub question of this, and maybe we already answered it, but reading this and coming out of it, I wondered like if Slaughterhouse-Five is asking us to ask this question about its author and, and like, uh, or does asking it pull us too far out of it? I don't think it pulls us too far out, but like, I'm curious if Kurt would care whether or not we care about his PTSD. You know what I mean? Like, does that distract from the book he's trying to do? It seems like what convinces me that he would be okay with that question and indeed that it's coded into the book is the scene where Billy goes to the porn store and sees the headline, whatever happened to Montana wild hack and the sci-fi pulp novel about trout famador, because he could have so easily not included that. And it would have been explicitly true that this is a science fiction novel and these things really happened to Billy Pilgrim. And uh, we get plenty of books like that from Vonnegut. Sirens of Titan is not interpretable as a dream or anything. It had like, it's a story about aliens (laughs) and spaceships that are really zipping around and doing, doing stuff. But (laughs) Slaughterhouse five, he took care to make it at least technically possible that you can blur your eyes and sort of go, or was it all a dream? You know, he Wizard of Oz is it. And uh, I think those clues wouldn't be in there if he wasn't at least on some level self-aware that Billy that it might all be in Billy's head. And if it's all in Billy's head, then it's definitely a treatise on PTSD, without a doubt in my mind. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And even him being in the book and saying, I've been trying for so long to turn my Dresden experience into something, it's been very difficult for me. Like, he... I think he would be very okay with us continuing to dig at that. He wouldn't be like, mm-hmm. and that's all you should know. Like, <laughs> right, right. like maybe he would interpersonally in a conversation, but artistically it seems like it's fine. It's good. I think he gave himself sort of a comfortable distance by writing not about his own PTSD, but in his mind, at least he's observing the effects on Joe Crone and people like uh, Palaya, who Edgar Derby's based on, right? Uh, a real yeah. soldier he knew who stole a can of beans and got executed in front of him. Um, yeah, Michael Palaya. Yeah. Michael Palaya. 
These are forgettable names. Sorry, Michael. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, Dumb name. Are... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that almost could be a distancing or, or a self care method, you know, yeah. almost instinctively to be like, well, I want to write about the horror of war, but I'm, I'm not, nah, I'm fine. So I'll write about that guy, Joe Crone and how he experienced this deep un you know, unrelenting horror. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me as a way to tackle the topic with some emotional distance, which is almost a healthier way to go about it than to revel in your own. Like there's early drafts that they mention where he says, I was there. This is what happened to me. You know, why can't right. mankind get along? Oh my God. This sort of gnashing of teeth and tearing at the hair thing. And I don't think he was interested in that. I think it kind of embarrassed him. I think that's why he turns to dark humor so often. Humor is so often a way to alleviate the idea that something's unspeakably awful, but I want to talk about it. But I don't want to just talk about it in a very vulnerable, straightforward way because it's too awful. I would collapse under the weight of the emotional resonance of the thing. So I'm going to package it as a joke. Uh, that's not... That's Kurt doesn't own that maneuver. <laughs> you know, everyone does that <laughs> to some degree. Totally. Arguably, it's the reason humor exists. I mean, it could, yeah, is a response to the tragedy, little tragedies. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Or just fun puns, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, I think it's either tragedy processing or the fact that some words sound like each other. And that's fun. Was, those are the two <laughs> branches of comedy. I firmly believe this. We're either. Yeah. Processing trauma by masking it with humor because you have to laugh at, at the unfathomable sadness of, yeah. of life. Or these words <laughs> sound like each other. That's fun. That tickles me. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as the humor processing goes, like if people are doing the equivalent of reading along with these episodes, I think mm -hmm. you are in a good spot if you watched the Whitey documentary before you read this Rostin book, because the still my favorite part of the Whitey documentary is those clips where you just see Vonnegut in a not thought out short circuiting kind of way, just say something terribly sad and laugh a bunch. Like yeah. <laughs> you can just see him doing it raw. It's amazing. Yeah. I also like when he'll just turn to the cameraman and go, Oh, suck my dick or whatever. <laughs> like that's also good. <laughs> the two comedy buckets. I meant to tell you off the, off the related reading last time I checked out some of those Siskel and Ebert being mad at each other clips. And yeah, they're like, they're truly, they truly don't like each other. They don't like it's being real. around each other. <laughs> you can tell that it's not a witty repartee. They dislike each other deeply. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> They're processing their shared trauma of having to be in the same room with each other. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Re-recommend watching yeah. that on YouTube. <laughs> and yeah, we can, we can always find more about Last Meat thing I was thinking of getting into is with uh, the writer Tom Roston, like the question mm -hmm. of how effective is his use of his own journey in the book. I, I think you were dead on when you said before that it's not an overwhelming amount of him. He's not like dominating the whole book, but, but he does pop in there a lot. Yeah. I didn't care about Tom Roston's personal journey. It was the <laughs> weakest part of the book to me when he would be like, 
this is how I tracked down this veteran and how I met him. And then here's all the things the veteran said. That second part is interesting to me. The first part is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a journalist. You called a bunch of people and you found him. I'm, you know, just because he doesn't use that kind of flair where like Hunter Thompson will be like, I was blasting through the desert on Quaaludes and that's how I found him. And you're like, well, man, you're interesting in and of yourself just as a person. But um, (laughs) Tom Rosson's just kind of, going about his business in a friendly way. So I didn't particularly care what his deal was. (laughs) No offense, Tom, if you're listening. He maybe almost did a little of the opposite of the balance Robert Whitey did, where like Robert Whitey really lets you get to know Robert Whitey to a pretty large extent. And Tom Roston keeps himself out of the way of the story as much as he can. But then Mm -hmm. that leaves you without... Like, like when I was doing the Frankentime segment and talking about Tom Roston's background, I had to Google all that, like... Other than the part about how he started writing the book, I didn't I didn't know anything about him. I still don't know where he's from or right. what his whole deal is broadly. I think the only <laughs> thing we get about him as a character, quote unquote, or as a protagonist is at the beginning, he says, I was really worried about making my mark as a nonfiction writer. So I decided to go big and, and write this thing about my favorite author, Kurt Vonnegut. And that's really all you need. Yeah, yeah I was motivated <laughs> to write this book or you wouldn't be holding it in your hands, you know. You don't even need that. It's self-evident by the fact the book exists. Um, And I know at the top of the show, I said I liked the author's note, but I also could have skipped it. I guess (laughs) I'm, I love Vonnegut too much. It's all I care about is tell me more about Kurt. (laughs) Because also coming off of YD stock, I thought when the author's note said, Kurt Vonnegut randomly called me on the phone in the intern pool. I thought it would lead to a lifelong friendship, but it did not. So I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I sort of set myself up for more of an expectation than is probably fair. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think also, like we said, it is sort of that style of a lot of nonfiction writing where unless they're going full gonzo, a lot of authors don't make themselves the main thing in it. And then you get more of the subject. And I thought he did a pretty strong balance whenever he talked about meeting veterans, like mm-hmm. modern veterans who are still around because you really got to know them and he it seemed like you you could like imagine Rostin there but he wasn't in the way he wasn't like making it a story about how good he was at talking to veterans you 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 the veteran got the spotlight that's true it's it's really just a few little asides where he suddenly will be like just so you know I was going to do this but it didn't pan out so that's why the book is the way it is that you're reading it and I was like I don't need to know about your false starts or the stuff you were going to do that didn't pan out or the theories you had that you don't believe are true that fell through. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't. It's neither here nor there. They, it just felt a little, I keep coming back to this word, meandery from time to time. That's my big knock against it. And yeah, I agree. And and even in spite of the giant, this never happened. The, the, the Kurt and Bernardo hair theoretically hunted a Nazi right at the beginning it still really derailed me a little bit i I was it derailed me because it's like why put it in if you know it's not true and you didn't find any evidence yeah it feels like lampshading (laughs) it feels like that thing where you make a bad joke in a sitcom and then you have another character say wow that was a bad joke and you think as the audience well then why did the writer put it in (laughs) cut that joke and think of a better joke um, so I like right. if one of your theses for your book didn't pan out, don't tell us that. Don't <laughs> just don't bring it up at all. Stick with the thesis about PTSD where you finally landed. 
Right, all the amazing stuff he researched in these archives and everything. Like you don't yeah, you don't exactly. need a, a fake Indiana Jones story that one person told you at one point. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, is there any other meat we want to get into? Otherwise, I think we can proceed to grade. Oh, I th- I'm already feeling highly critical. I think it's time go. to grade, Alex. <laughs> this next segment is called Tom Rasta Grades. F-D-C-B-A. Let's see where these grades lay. <laughs> it's a fun scale. <laughs> and, uh, and Mixolydian, like when... <laughs> for those listening at home. No, I don't, I don't know from scales. Oh, yeah, I, I've heard that word. Um, <laughs> and yeah, folks, if you've heard the other recent episodes, you know we're doing a version of Kurt Vonnegut grades, but it's just grading these works by these other folks. And mm-hmm. there's a spreadsheet with all of them in it. We'll have that. It's I think it's already linked on social media. But uh, start. we'll start with a couple outside reviews and then do our grade of this book. Publishers Weekly says, quote, While Rostin can occasionally go on tangents, his passion for Vonnegut's writing is contagious. Vonnegut's fans will find in this survey a fresh take on a classic, end quote. No letter grade, but that's Publishers Weekly. And then the other review here is from Kirkus Reviews. They call this a rangy, occasionally rambling portrait of one of our stranger, more enduring war novels. They also say that Rostin's efforts are fruitful, despite not being able to answer the central question of his book, which I think they see as whether Kurt Vonnegut had like clinical PTSD. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty in alignment with both reviewers. Me too. I think. Yeah. We did a good job of sucking the marrow out of the most interesting aspects and presenting them to our listeners. Yeah. Uh, if I actually were grading the book as a as a reading experience compared to all the nonfiction books I've ever read, like reading it from cover to cover with all the meandering and all the not answering questions that you raise and all that, I got to go C plus, Alex. It was fine. Not great. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that we dug in and found a lot of little interesting tidbits, I think I was just like, yeah, it was a book. It was a book about Kurt Vonnegut. I'm in alignment. I would also go C plus. And I, I also Dang. think like, sorry, Tom, <laughs> sorry, man. but then it's better than it's like any book where I'd say it's a C plus as a book. And then if you love Kurt Vonnegut, it's a better experience than that. Because you agreed. And if you have a good pal to talk about it with, like this conversation was very scintillating and made it feel like more than a C plus. Um, But it's a C plus. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I because a lot of the positivity of how I feel about it is from the chapter where it's a history of war trauma that I wish was just a whole book about. That was the best chapter. The psychology of war trauma and our understanding Mm -hmm. of it over time. And I think. In this context, it's like you're either like, why are we stepping away from Vonnegut or why do we only get this much of this amazing thing? But that chapter in and of itself is I'm, I'll probably think about a lot like there, there were mm-hmm. a lot of amazing things in there. So that's pretty cool. I'm glad I have that like yeah. nonfiction knowledge of the 20th century, basically, and psychology. <laughs> Agreed. But and uh, from here, we can get into the next segment called Related Reading. Let's move on, because I feel mean now. Yeah. <laughs> I do, and I. it's it's like with all these things, I think we've said it before, like we're rooting for every Vonnegut project, and so we're right. so glad when they happen. Yeah, they. We, well, we gave a very high grade to that graphic novel, so. 
Yes. I stand by that. That graphic novel rips. <laughs> oh my God. More of them, please. For all yeah. of them. <laughs> oh yeah. I'd love to see that as a whole series. That would be great. Yeah. When I think, and I only have two things for related reading. I have a book mm-hmm. and then I have an article. I've got one. So you go first. One strength of Rostin's book, honestly, is how much he talks to Tim O'Brien. And if people haven't read the things they carried, it's a really amazing book. It's one, it's one of my partner's favorite books ever. And if I remember right, there is some fictionalization in the storytelling, but it's stories of people who were Vietnam soldiers and, and kind of springing from an item that they carried to tell a broader story about them and the world and the experience of it. And then it gets to O'Brien's actual life. And it's just like a really, really moving, uh, I forget what the tr- name for the genre is, but it like fictionalized history. Mm. Like there's a, there's a book called the killer angels. That's a fictionalized telling of Gettysburg where they are trying to go off of real history, but they're just inventing parts that they need to invent in the middle. You know, it's, right. it's kind of one of those and it's incredible. It's really good. Nice. And I read and it I in school. Some people read it in Moby school. Dick related thing here. Ah, yeah. Very exciting. What's that? Yeah, and then the article, uh, this is about Moby Dick. The article is titled, Ahab's Gifts, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and the Meaning of Pain. And it's written by Shi Chen, who, uh, when they wrote it, they were a medical student at the University of Rochester. I don't know if they've graduated yet or not. But they wrote it for a medical journal, and it's a, just a brief, really great article, especially if you've read Moby Dick, which I have, and have springboarded into like a bunch of other Melville actually he's he's Hmm. he's really great turns out but um but it is a medical student talking about the experience of being at the start of medical school it's already a grind and then having to study pain like Hmm. how patients experience it how we track it as people how doctors can monitor it and he he just finds Ahab's experience much more meaningful because he's also reading Moby Dick at the same time. And I think he gets a, this in a similar way, veterans get something out of slaughterhouse five. That's incredibly relatable to them. He both as a student and a potential practitioner and a human being. So I guess three things, not both, but as all of those things, he, he just has a similar resonant experience with Moby Dick and medicine, which I think is really cool. And it's real short. I like that loaded up, ready to read. Yeah, Definitely it's like, gonna give that a read. It's probably like two pages, yeah. So yeah. check it out, folks. If you want to go the complete opposite direction, uh, <laughs> there is a four thousand page uh, two part tome uh, that I recommend. Yeah. It's the autobiography of Mark Twain. Um, I've never it, taken it on. Yeah, it was not to be published until a century after his death or something like that. I think was in his will, and it came out in our lifetimes. Came out like fifteen years ago or so. And, uh, yeah, it's good. Or just reading, getting these little, you know, this guided tour of the people Tom Rostin spoke to just reminded me of the actual source material and the fact that although Vonnegut doesn't have this, uh, the next best thing would be Mark Twain. Mark Twain does have thousands of pages of him just dictating to his secretary, Stories from his life, what he what he thinks about everything, what he thinks about the Gilded Age and the world and humanity and the future of and talk about rangy and rambly like he was just smoking (laughs) cigars in bed saying whatever he wanted. So if you like Dennis Miller style rants that are 80 pages long about things that were scandalous (laughs) in the time of Mark Twain, but now are just fascinating artifacts of history. 
Uh, I do recommend it. I made my way through part one. I have never read part two, but, uh, you know, it's like, it's the textural quality is also what I'm going for. I really like in the same way. I like Hunter. I like Twain's just style of speaking style of writing. Uh, yeah. So towards the end of his life, he just dictated this whole thing. (laughs) Uh, did not, didn't seem to edit it much. It's like, (laughs) if you want to dig into the source code, here you go. These are unfiltered. You can't know Mark Twain better than this. It's just thousands of pages of unfiltered thoughts. <laughs> it's fun. Flip through it sometime. Good bathroom book. You're the first person I think who I know who has read it. So I'm thrilled to get like a take on it. Yeah. Cause I, I, yeah, my mom and I read it together. Oh, that's cool. It's easier if you have someone to talk to about it with. Yeah. Cause it can yeah. be dry for sections and sec by sections i mean 150 pages will be really boring (laughs) yeah it takes some doing but it's also the kind of thing where you can flip through or find the title of a segment and go oh well that sounds interesting to me you know just that segment um but then there's other parts where he's just like i was born in this state in this town my father bought a parcel of land (laughs) that was this large at this year and we lived there from this year to this year and you're like all right it's like the parts of the bible where it's so and so begets so and so begets you're like this is all well and good but then in between you'll have really beautiful crystallized rants about you know topical notions of the day and some (laughs) some things just about humanity that still really resonate of course because it's twain yeah that sounds amazing and especially with the opportunity to hop around slightly, if it becomes clear that a section is... doesn't hurt to hop around at all. Yeah. Feel free. Man, what a tip. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Hot and, tip. and I guess, I guess like the equivalent of that doesn't quite exist for Kurt Vonnegut because as much as we have his letters and his essays and, and other things that are not novels, like he never just un- until Whitey releases the archives, we don't, we don't have like a pure uncut block of him just talking for right. like a hundred hours. <laughs> yeah. This would be like, it's basically a transcript of if Mark Twain had a podcast and I don't think we'll get that for Kurt, uh, but you do get it for Twain, which is sweet. This is the Joe. It's the Mark Twain experience. <laughs> they could have called it. <laughs> Just so many ads for cigars. The whole time. Yeah. Coupons in the back for brain powder. <laughs> Cut out and mail them in. Yeah. <laughs> Well, folks, I am very excited about the idea of diving into that. And uh, from here, I think we have one more segment, which is Vonnegut News. That's the one. That's the one we're always in the pocket for. Iron Clad. Yeah. Yeah. And the folks, it is 2022, as you know. And so the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in Indianapolis, they hold their next annual Night of Vonnegut fundraiser on April 10th which is coming up. Uh, you can go to their website for more info. I believe that's kvml.org. I'll put a link either way. And then, uh, yeah, Kurt Vonnegut's theoretical 100th birthday is November 11th of 2022. He was born in 1922. So this is the year he would have turned 100. Wow. And we said at the top, uh, there are no more, you know, for now, no more Kurt Vonnegut's episodes. I feel like we can also tell people about what we're working on and up to. And I, I know you are working on a Harlan Ellison show. That's if, right. I think we can tell people. I've heard about it. So Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> launching a new show called Like Razorblade Pie that will be a short story reading group. Yeah. Uh, I'll have a different guest every episode, and I'll announce what we're reading ahead of time. So our first episode will feature Katie Stoll. 
and be about the story, The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World. So definitely feel free to drop on by. Subscribe to Small Beans uh, on your podcasting app if you want to hear that. Like Razorblade Pie. Yeah. Yeah, you posted the art. It looks great. And yeah, I, Ellis, yeah. for my money, Ellison has the best short story titles. If nothing else, <laughs> he has the most evocative titles. <laughs> okay. Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Nothing for my right. noon meal. Deathbird <laughs> stories. So good. Just good stuff. It did, I remember reading A Boy and His Dog and feeling like he reined himself in on that title because he knew how funny it was. That title's a little mundane for him. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, he, But he Cold knew that was such friend. a funny choice of title for that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I thought it would be a little too cliche to have Alex on as the first guest, but you'll definitely get in the mix quickly if, if you're willing. I'd love to yeah. have you on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'd love to. Have you read yeah. much, Ellison, outside Boy and His Dog? I'm I'm pretty sure just that and Beast that Shouted Love. The story. Oh, you, I think that's oh, it. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay, cool. Because I'm, I'm also trying to pair people with stories that i think represent them or their personality like there's oh, a reason i'm pairing the guest with the story so i'll have to noodle out what's an alex schmidt ellison story that'll be fun <laughs> is is there a story where a guy goes on jeopardy and then like the podium eats him or something with it <laughs> no there's this, this guy invents a buffalo emoji and it tramples him to death <laughs> yeah right. okay it's like the velt yeah <laughs> No, my emoji. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that's definitely what I'm working on that would most interest listeners of this show for sure. Yeah, it's a really cool idea, man. It's cool. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. And uh, and yeah, of course, please, folks, check out all small beans things. What do you got cooking? And uh, and then I'm podcasting secretly, incredibly fascinating. Yeah, with many wonderful guests, including Michael Swain from time to time, and I'm sure again. Oh, can't wait. But yeah, I think that, and like we said at the top, if some humongous Vonnegut thing comes again, we'll probably do it. But otherwise, I think this is a wrap for a while, at the very least. Yeah, it's on you now, listeners. It's your responsibility. (laughs) Flag us if something comes to your attention. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll be in our Vonnegut chrysalises, (laughs) hibernating for 17 years, like so much Pennywise. (laughs) <laughs> like cryobacononic sleep or whatever yeah that's right yeah <laughs> cicadas that believe in yeah boconan that's gonna bother me forever or, or <laughs> i think i did Baconan? it wrong trying to do the pun i was reaching yeah it doesn't doesn't yeah. make sense <laughs> but vonnegut said in the whitey documentary said baconan i think yeah baconan shattered my whole worldview let's get out of here so i can put the pieces of my mind back together uh and thank you all so much for kind notes everything else and and love to hear what you think of this episode thank you thank you uh but until next time if this isn't nice what is